DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations 2022. I'm Roland Norfell. And I'm Evie Norfell. And we are very excited today to have Natalie Wade on the podcast. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. Natalie is a prominent disability rights lawyer and advocate, and it's perfect timing to have Natalie on the podcast because this year is a big year in legal developments in the disability community, and we'll get into quite a few of those. For those of you not familiar with Natalie's work, she's the founder and principal lawyer of Equality Lawyers, which is an Adelaide-based law firm that's specifically for people with disability, their families and their supporters. Natalie is super passionate about advancing the rights of people with disability and diversity within the legal profession. And in 2016, she was actually awarded both the South Australian and Australian Young Lawyer of the Year in recognition of her work in that area. So a very, very warm welcome to you, Natalie. And so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation today. And Natalie, I want to kick off with a personal question. When did the personal become political for you in disability? So you are a person with disability and you're working in the field. Where did those two paths meet? I love that expression, the personal became political. Yeah, do you know, I think in so many ways, the career that I have was somewhat always meant to be. I was born with a physical uh, disability. I uh, spend my time zipping around in an electric wheelchair and I have no no real physical capacity to, to do my own personal care every day. And I was born in the very late 80s, so 1989, and it was right on the cusp of where people with disabilities like me with um in the medical language had profound or severe physical disabilities were placed into institutions. But when I was born, we were starting to be allowed to go home and live with our families. And I had one of those families who took me home with them. My then my parents fight for me to have education and, and in the mainstream setting, and then that led me uh, into university and uh, obviously into a career in the law. But it was really in final year, after sort of the first five years of doing student politics and, and disability advocacy, learning how to uh, feed in my lived experience to structured and organised and systemic advocacy, that when I got to the end of my law degree in fifth year, I thought to myself, gosh, I would just love to spend all day, every day, defending the rights of people with disabilities, just like me, with my law degree that I now have. But the the job that I dreamt of didn't exist here in Adelaide to be a disability rights lawyer. That's fantastic. So... Your life spans a lot of changes. You spoke about that maybe you could have gone to an institution when you first went home. 
Has the last 10 years been as big as I feel it's been? I've probably been working in the field for about as long as you've been alive, Natalie, I, I guess. But has the last 10 years been, you know, it's the NDIS, it's the, um, you know, Dylan Alcott this year is yet another step. Is it as big as we, I feel it is? Yes. it's So I guess for reference for you and your listeners, so I am 32 years old. I was born in 1989. And throughout my lifetime, there have been significant changes to the advancement of the rights of people with disabilities. You know, I think about it every morning when I get on the bus and I think, you know, a local Adelaide man, Morris Corcoran, was the person who brought uh, Adelaide Metro, uh, as it now is, uh, before the Human Rights Commission to get ramps on buses um, and that's now how I get to work every day but in the last 10 years really since we've had the NDIS it's been really interesting you know we've, we've seen a, a huge advancement in the rights of lots of people certainly not all people with disabilities in their participation in education that is going to mainstream schooling we now see most people with disabilities stay home with their families uh, and are not institutionalised at an early age like they were in times by. You know, we're also seeing greater rates of um, employment participation and better supports through the NDIS, um, as you touched on. It's, it's a really interesting space. Um, the last 30 years is really the lifespan of the disability rights movement in Australia. Natalie, there's three topics in the legal domain, huge shifts happening in 2022 that we want to talk to you about. We want to talk about the Disability Royal Commission, the potential changes to the NDIS Act and the Australian Disability Strategy. So you better keep listening till the end of the episode because that's a lot of great stuff. But we're going to start with the Disability Royal Commission, which is finishing submissions towards the end of the year. And we'd love to know what's your sort of big picture analysis of what that's going to mean for the disability community. You know, the Disability Royal Commission has been one of the hallmarks of the Australian disability rights movement to date. It has really shown the line in the sand for people with disabilities, their families and their advocates to have a light shone on what has happened in the past. And that's really what the genesis of the Disability Royal Commission was after some decade of advocacy uh, by people with lived experience and their supporters with a view to really have the opportunity for a proper investigation to be undertaken as to what went on in largely institutionalised settings um, and in other areas of life. So that's, you know, I guess that was, that was what the purpose was. But the purpose of it, in my view, is going to look quite different to the outcome. I think what we can start to expect from the recommendations that will be provided from the Disability Royal Commission um, is more about where to from here. So we will no doubt have a backdrop of awful treatment some of the most abhorrent uh, human rights abuses have been perpetrated against people with disabilities in Australia. And I have no doubt that that will be the backdrop of which the, the commissioners will bring recommendations about 
how do we go forward? And how do we go forward is about creating an inclusive society. And I, you know, certainly wouldn't place a bet, but I would say that the anticipation would be that the Royal Commissioners will be looking to make recommendations that last generations for those things that have happened in the past to never happen again. And to stop those from happening, we need structural and systemic change. And I think the recommendations would be about creating systems and structures that stop violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation from happening. I guess one of the things that worries me, Natalie, about the Disability Royal Commission, and you know this better than I do, is that lawyers take such a case-based approach, such an individualised approach, and it seems a lot of the Royal Commission is looking at the individual. I'm genuinely worried about their ability to come back with the systemic change that's needed. Would you Do you have any feel about that? Yeah, so what is really important um, to remember is that the Disability Royal Commission, like all Royal Commissions before and after it, are made up of a group of staff that have various skills and expertise. So what we see in the public is definitely the lawyers doing the legal work. You know, we see public hearings where there's uh, senior counsel, like a barrister who is... um, you're examining witnesses um, and doing that very traditional lawyer role. But what we see less of is the policy team and the strategic thinkers that are employed by the Disability Royal Commission to do that very work role that you're talking about. And that is to really take those individual stories that we hear at public hearings and let them inform um, the policy and systemic change that needs to happen. So, you know, for example, you you will not get recommendations that says, you know, Mrs. Jones was abused in, you know, 1993, and so we find that she was abused and she deserves redress. That's not a finding of the Royal Commission. A finding will be, you know, uh, people who lived in group homes are significantly more likely to be abused in that setting. Therefore, we recommend all group homes are shut down. It's it's about building an evidence base to create a policy change. I appreciate your optimism. Let's turn the conversation now to the NDIS Act. The NDIS Act is, of course, the legislation that underpins the National Disability Insurance Scheme. You couldn't get a more important piece of policy in NDIS. It determines, among many, many things, who's eligible for NDIS and what are considered reasonable and necessary supports. And the government have been trying for uh, a couple of years now to reform the Act. And we are kind of still in the period of reform. As far as I understand, it's maybe not going to happen in this side of the election. Natalie, can you talk to us about the process of reform? Yeah, sure. So um, so when we have a, a piece of legislation to a law, in this case, the NDIS Act, the government of the day will put that act through the parliament. Uh, so there are two houses of parliament and both houses sign it off, and then it becomes law that we, the community, all have to abide by. So, that, so there's no time 
in which a law has to be reviewed. So there's not like a scheduled annual review or similar. So laws can stay in place forever in some respects and not even change. But often what does happen, particularly for uh, areas like the NDIS, is that different governments will have different ideas about what is a good thing to do. And so if they want to change the law, then they need to put into the parliament a, a new piece of legislation that changes the old piece of legislation, and that's called an amendment bill. And so they put the amendment bill into the parliament and they debate it. Now, uh, the disability community is heard in that debate through uh, advocacy organisations that have relationships with politicians and members of parliament that then let their voice be heard. So, for example, lots of your listeners may be familiar with Jordan Steele-John. He's a member for the Greens and he sits in the federal Senate. And so uh, lots of people with disabilities and their advocacy organisations talk to Jordan because he is a person with a disability himself and he understands the issues. And so they will let Jordan know, well, you know, we really want the NGIS to be doing this, that or the other. And then he's able to go and tell the parliament that the amendment bill is not suiting what community needs. Natalie, we also want to talk to you about the National Disability Strategy, but I note that you call it the Australian Disability Strategy. Did, did I miss that change? You're not that far off, Roland, to be fair. The, the National Disability Strategy was called the National Disability Strategy for 10 years. But last year, in 2021, we had the Australian Disability Strategy replace the National Disability Strategy. The Australian Disability Strategy is a public policy document. A public policy document is effectively what government says they will do with respect to a particular area. It sets how they will achieve a particular outcome, for example, inclusive education, and what they need to do to get there. So it'll often read um, as very large statements, like we, by we, we mean the government, we will have inclusive education. We will offer accessible housing. And so it, it sounds more sophisticated than that, but that's the general gist of it. And so it's really, really important for people with disabilities and their families to know what the Australian Disability Strategy says, because it tells us where the government is focusing their attention and importantly their money to advance the rights of people with disabilities. So the Australian Disability Strategy focuses on a number of different areas that will hopefully do just that, advance the rights of people with disabilities. And as a lawyer, you'd be acutely aware working at the national level that the Australian federal system, it, it cruels this stuff, doesn't it? Like the NDIS really suffers from being 
federally and state funded and the collaboration that doesn't go on between the feds and the states, the Australian disability strategy will suffer the same sorts of um, terrors, won't it? To an extent, that's true to say. So it's definitely problematic to have a federalised system that is having a Commonwealth government and then state and territory governments for people with disabilities because the disability experience traverses so many different areas of life and government responsibility. But importantly, the Australian Disability Strategy has been agreed to and committed to by all state and territory governments. So people with disabilities can expect that the state and territory governments would have the same commitment to the strategy that um, the Commonwealth government has. One more question on the strategy itself. The Americans are particularly proud of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I don't know if you know about that act versus this act. Do you have any feeling between how act how act compares to the US? So the um, Americans with Disabilities Act is quite different to the Australian Disability Strategy in that the Australian Disability Strategy is not a law. And so it has no legal standing at all. For example, a person with a disability could not bring any sort of legal action for the government failing to comply with the strategy. So if the strategy said, you know, we will provide inclusive schools and a person with a disability did not have an inclusive experience at a school, then the strategy is not able to enliven any sorts of rights. Whereas the Americans with Disabilities Act it does provide individual recourse where a person with a disability's rights are offended or ignored. I think probably what we would want if we were looking to the US for inspiration would be a federal charter for human rights. And a federal charter for human rights would create a legally enforceable option where a person, including a person with a disability, has their rights denied. And speaking about human rights, Natalie, we're running a, a conference uh, in March about supported decision-making, and it just couldn't be clearer from the UNCRPD that support for decision-making is a fundamental human right. But when we talk about fundamental human rights and supported decision-making you know, amongst those, the words just seem to um, wash off people. Do you find that people take human rights seriously in Australia? Mm. Look, our, our government believes perhaps they're doing the best that they can, but we don't have a legal system or structure that would support that we embrace human rights in a legal sense, in that we don't have a federal charter of human rights, we don't have um, human rights charters at a state and territory level other than in the ACT, Victoria and Queensland. So I think taking human rights seriously is something that Australia has significant room for improvement on, but also the broader community has some work to do as well. Because we know in the disability rights space that a lot of disability rights abuses happen at an individual level. There's a lot of um, 
individual responsibility that is also important in the human rights conversation. But as a whole, as a country, as a government, incredibly significant room for improvement is required. Mm, there's a there's a challenge that I face um, as a trainer, you know, in providing training to disability service providers when thinking about human rights, because at least morally we hold them in such high standing, it almost becomes like an identity. Like I am someone who upholds human rights, which I mean, frankly, probably none of us do a hundred percent all of the time, but because it's become such an identity of I'm someone who upholds human rights, it becomes incredibly difficult to talk to people about the ways that they may not always get that right. And I mean, I'm not suggesting that you start the conversation by calling someone a human rights violator, but in your experience as an advocate, I'm sure you also meet people who are incredibly well-meaning and would identify as someone who's a real champion of human rights. How do you, I mean, like what advice do you have for having conversations with people about um, helping them see where they may be going astray? It's really important to acknowledge that we live in a society that does not support, advance or promote the rights of, in this case, people with disabilities as a So if you think that you're going about your life doing a good thing and upholding the rights of people with disabilities just by being kind, then it's probably not really true to say. I think that what um, we need to be doing is turning our mind to actively being aware of where people with disabilities face everyday discrimination, face everyday exclusion, and face vulnerabilities disproportionately to violence, abuse, neglect, and exploitation, and make sure that we don't contribute to those structures and systems. You know, there's more influence than people think they have. If they're aware that people with disabilities have this systemic and structural disadvantage, um, where they are not provided with full access or recognition of their rights, then in your relevant field of influence, which may be in your job or in your local community, whatever, you are able to alter your system or structure that you work in to be more inclusive. So Natalie, we've talked to you about a lifetime of change and what you've seen, and I think this is going to be our final question about change you might see in your lifetime. Do you think you'll see a day when people who provide services with people with disability see it as their fundamental first thing they need to do is to support people to choose, to take control, um, to be in charge of their own lives rather than providing the services they think they need. Do you think we're going to get there in your lifetime? Uh, Wouldn't wouldn't that be the dream, Roland? I I, I think it it is possible, but not at the pace we are going right now. So if we continue in the way that we are moving forward, in my view, it is a relatively glacial pace, then no, probably not in my lifetime. But I think if we have enough political will, if we have enough understanding and input from the broader community, I definitely think we can get it done. And I think we're starting to see that happened. As you mentioned earlier, 
you know, Dylan Alcott being named Australian of the Year. We're seeing the, the government provide really key documents like the Australian Disability Strategy reforms to the NDIS Act, the outcomes of the Disability Royal Commission. All of these things that will happen, honestly, in the next two years, really, will offer an opportunity that will be once-in-generational opportunities to create change. So I think probably that's a good question to ask me again in three years' time, because I think we're either about to see a real surge in energy, uh, resources and commitment to advance in the rights of people with disabilities, which would be great if we did, then I think we would definitely see um, a more rights-focused delivery of supports based on choice and control. But if we don't, if it turns out that it's all, you know, a bit of fanfare and it doesn't quite amount to what we need it to, then I would not say in my lifetime. Hmm. Thank you so much, Natalie, for taking the time to talk to us today. And what a perfect guest to come before Senator Steele, John. A nice little teaser into our conversation about the legislation reform with Jordan Steelejohn coming up very shortly. Those of you who want to read more about Natalie's work can head to equalitylawyers.com.au and we'd particularly recommend you check out the Disability Rights in Real Life Handbook. It's a beautifully illustrated, very easy to read handbook um, that's an excellent resource for anyone who has a disability or is supporting somebody who does. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you again so much for having me. I hope this conversation is useful for your listeners. It's been terrific, Natalie. Thank you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. Please feel free to subscribe. We love subscribers. You can do that wherever you're listening to this or at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast. And if you're listening to this before the 24th of March, you're in luck because you still get to attend the supported decision-making in practice two-day event of the year. So you can also find that at our website, teamdsc.com.au. And if it's after March 24th, then I'm sorry, guys, you've, you've missed the boat. But look, there's always something good coming around the corner. So get on our mail list anyway. Bye.